Well, it's wonderful to be here together with you. Thanks so much for being with us at Calvary Monument Bible Church, whether you're here in the building or whether you're with us online today. We're so thrilled uh, to be together with you. You know, it's interesting, we continue to work through the Gospel of John, and we're in John chapter 19 today, and we're nearing the end of John 19, and one of the realities that we're going to come to see is that oftentimes in our lives, grief and gain coexist. Grief and gain coexist. Now, we've seen this uh, probably more recently with COVID, with the health challenges that our country has faced. There has been grief. There has been difficulty. There has been some from within our own fellowship whose families have been affected uh, by this virus. Some have even lost family members due to complications from this virus. And so there has been grief. But in the midst of that grief, we've also seen opportunity. We've, all, we've also seen Uh, Ways to care for one another differently. Love one another differently. There has been opportunity and there has been gain. I want to show another way that that these two concepts often co-mingle with one another and it actually involves our own family. In the past eight months, we've been adapting to new realities in our home as We've welcomed Yuri and Levinsky into our family, and oftentimes, as is so with adoption, what we see is we see the gain, but we fail to consider the grief. And I will tell you, there is grief. There is grief. There there has been loss. For our boys, they have been taken away from the culture and the community, from their own siblings that they know, that they love. They've been taken from a place where everyone speaks their language and looks just like them. And they've been torn away from that place and placed in a foreign environment where very little, very few people look like them. And very little people, in fact hardly any that we know, speak their language. And they've had to learn new routines, and they've had to learn new patterns, and they've had to learn new languages and systems, and there has been grief. They've missed their brothers. Their brothers are still in Haiti. They miss their family. And for what in our home was for 13 years, Brighton, Bailey, Brody, mom, dad, there has been grief as that has been broken. And there has had to been room made for the addition of new children. Which means that biological children get less time, less energy, less space. And so there is grief and there is gain mingled together for the glory of God. Author and theologian Willie Jennings says, To free someone is never without cost, end quote. And today, what we are going to witness in the text that we are studying together is the reality of the price that Jesus paid to secure our freedom. Jesus paid a price for us to be free. And as we do this, we will answer This question, how do grief and gain come together for the glory of God at the foot 
of the cross. And we are going to reserve our Scripture memory verse until we get to the end of reading our text today since it's included in our text. And when we get to it, we will say it together. But before we enter our text this morning, let's take a moment and pray. Father, we do thank You for the power of Your Word. We thank You that we can come to this place together as a body of Christ. We can gather at homes. We can gather in a building. And we can gather around Your Word And Lord, Your Word has the incredible power as Your Spirit uses us to comfort the broken and to unsettle the comfortable. And again, Lord, that is our call unto You as we break open Your Word today. That the truth of Your Word would both comfort and unsettle. That we would not leave here the same as as we've come but we would leave here differently changed through our time together in the study of Your Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 19, we're starting in the second half of verse 16 and reading down through verse 30. And when we get to verse 30, we will say it together. John 19, 16. So they took Jesus and He went out bearing His own cross to the place they called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified Him, and with Him two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments, they divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. Also His tunic, but the tunic was seamless. Woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture which says, they divided My garments among them, and for My clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. Then He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And we will say verse 30 together. When Jesus had received the sour wine... He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
John 19, 30. And so here we are at the grief we witness on the cross. Of course, the crucifixion was not able to take place inside of the city. Once the pronouncement of guilt was given, the guilty would be scourged and executed by way of crucifixion. The laws of Judaism did not allow for a person to be crucified within the city walls, and so there's a procession that begins. The guards will take Jesus from within the walls of the city, and they'll begin to move out of Jerusalem towards a place called Golgotha, the hill of the skull. We today know it most readily as Mount Calvary. And it is no irony, it is no surprise that Jesus at one point in His ministry had told a group of people this very statement in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself Take up His cross daily and follow Me. And I wonder if it ever crossed the minds of those who had heard that teaching that Jesus was now by His actions demonstrating what true discipleship looks like. Laying down His life for His brothers and sisters. And so just to help us understand a rough idea of what Jesus was facing in these very moments and how difficult it was for Him. He had already been beaten. He had been flogged. He was bloody. And now His assignment would be to take up a 300-pound cross. Many of us could not squat 300 pounds. Let alone after being beaten and bloodied and tortured. And he would have to place it upon his back and bear its yoke all of the way to the place where he would die. And again, it's no irony, the imagery is no accident. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus had said these very words, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of the cross, friends. The yoke of the cross, both a physical and a symbolic reality for Jesus. Physically, the weight of human condemnation resting on Jesus' shoulders. Symbolically, the weight of the law that the Jews had used to oppress and control. Jesus was taking all of it, and He would see His task completed. And along the way, Matthew's Gospel actually tells us of a scene of something that happened to Jesus. As you can imagine, He's in pain after the torture, and He's dragging somewhere upwards to a 300-pound cross on his back, and he collapses. Along the way, Matthew chapter 27 tells us of this man who's called out from amongst the crowd, a man named Simon of Cyrene. And it would be Simon's task to also place his hands on the cross of Christ, bearing its burden 
to remind us all that our hands too were all over this execution. Arriving at Golgotha, Jesus, He would not be tied to the cross. Sometimes people who were crucified, they they would take twine or ropes and they would bind them to the cross. But this was not how Jesus was to die. His death would be even more gruesome. And I want to thank one of our congregants for the artwork from their family that was provided to help illustrate some of the realities that Jesus faced. The nails used to pin Jesus to the cross would have been a smaller version of what we know to be a railroad tie. It would have looked a little bit smaller than a regular size railroad tie. And scholars would often debate over the years whether these nails were actually driven into the hands or the wrists of Jesus, but we can agree that either the hands or the wrists would have been incredibly painful. Either one. The connective tissues of the hands or the wrists would now be what had to bear the brunt of the weight of the upper body holding Jesus' arms to the cross. And then His feet. And what they would do often is they would take the right foot and they would place it... Let's see how my balance is this morning. On top of the left foot. And they would take that nail, again, a little bit smaller than a railroad tie, and they would go to where the second and third metatarsal have a break about halfway up the foot, right around here. And they would hammer that nail in, pinning both feet on top of one another and pinning the person to the cross. All of this would take place as the cross was laying on the ground. So Jesus' body on the ground, on the cross, and as He's laying on the ground, the nails are being driven into the hands and the feet, and then a group of soldiers would gather around the cross and they would lift it. And what they did is they created these limestone plugs that most scholars believe were about 13 inches in diameter. And these limestone plugs would be in the ground at a certain depth so that when they lifted up the cross, the wooden part of the bottom of the cross would slide into the plug and drop down. Imagine the pain for a person who had been nailed when that cross actually hit the earth and came to a stop. It wasn't painful enough having those railroad ties driven into your body. The weight of your body now pressing down would have been even more unbearable. And our text reminds us that Jesus was crucified as a criminal between two criminals. Look at verse 18. There they crucified Him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Psalm chapter 22, verse 16 is a stark and prophetic psalm pointing directly at the sobering reality. Even dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 
And the tradition back in that time was that the man in the middle was the most significant of those who were being crucified. And then this inscription. How about the inscription? An appropriate description of Jesus that is both full of irony and indignation. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Irony in in that what Pilate had inscribed was true. He was. But also indignation in that Pilate aimed that statement directly at the heart of the religious leaders who had forced his hand. It was inscribed in all three of the common languages of the area, written in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. All would know the title of the one who was being crucified. And to the religious establishment, to the institution of the religious leaders and who they were and what they stood for, this was an embarrassment. It was a disruption to their celebratory platitudes. Their their displeasure is so clear in the text. In verse 21, look at what they said. Do not write that. Do not write the King of the Jews. But rather, He said, I am King of the Jews. Come on, Pilate. He's not our King. Why did you have to go say it that way? And my question at this point, they had already gotten their way. Would anything have ever had been enough for these men? Pilate's succinct response puts an end to their impossible demands. Look at what he says. I I love this. What I have written, I have written. In other words, in Pilate's mind, this is the end of the matter. It is finished. But it is not yet finished for Jesus. And now it's, it's, it's a beautiful turning in this narrative. John's Gospel is very different than some of the other Gospels. Some of the other Gospels live in the pain. Some of the other Gospels live in the grief and further define and describe the torment in even more detail, but not so in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, the narrative turns to begin to show us that there is gain at the foot of the cross. For one group in our text, the gain would be self-motivated, selfish, conceited. Jesus' garments, they would be divided up amongst the soldiers, and there were two kinds of garments that men would have worn back in that time. There were outer garments, you know, something that would perhaps go around the head or the neck, something that would be worn over top of a tunic which would have been a single garment that a man wore under the outer garments. And the soldiers, they would have believed that dividing up his garments was their rightful reward for the participation that they were playing in their crucifixion, in his crucifixion. It's almost like a reward or a booty for what they were participating in. But then the tunic... And John describes the tunic in verse 23. It was seamless. For those of you that are sewers in here, we may have some sewers. 
Sewing something that's seamless, a one-piece garment, takes some skill and some ability. This would have been difficult. This was an undergarment. It was worn by both men and women in the ancient Near East. And for most all who would wear it, the tunic would be two pieces stitched together to form one. But this tunic was seamless. A one-piece garment would have been reserved for the high priest. It would have been an especially sacred piece of linen that was worn by the priests on the Day of Atonement. And so this reality not only points to a fulfillment of prophecy in Psalm 22, verse 18, where it talks about they divided His garments up among them, but it also speaks to the nature of Jesus as our great high priest before us, performing the duties of the high priest perfectly for His people. His tunic would not be rended. It would not be torn. And the Roman soldiers in their part of this, they would gain some memorabilia from this event. They would have some possessions for personal gain. True disciples of Christ would gain eternity. And while the soldiers walked away with their hands full, the Savior of the world emptied Himself on the cross. Stark contrast. And however, it was not just the centurions who stood to gain from this event as Jesus hung. And while the soldiers were busy dividing the, so- the spoil between themselves, there was another group who stood by and who watched the suffering of Jesus. This is a much smaller group. One, one might expect a larger group, but we know as we read the narrative of Jesus, His disciples start to fall away. One after the other after the other. They just continue to disappear. And so what we're left with is a small group of Jesus' closest followers and His family. They're standing by and they're watching in grief and horror as their friend, their nephew, their child was dying on the cross. And Jesus' time is nearing an end. Every breath, every word that comes out of His mouth is vitally important. There's nothing that can be wasted. His mother, His aunt, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, and His disciple John are all that remain. And Jesus' concern here turns to the care of His mother. Jesus' mother Mary. And she has been conspicuously absent in John's Gospel. The last time that we saw or heard from Mary all the way back in John chapter 2. And now here Jesus refers to her with the exact same title that He used to refer to her in John 2. He says, woman. And again, I think I explained before, this is not like the way that woman is used in our culture today. All right, we, this is not, I think sometimes we read this and we think, my goodness, that's kind of harsh, Jesus. You know, this is not woman. It's not what this is. This is gentle, it's loving. Woman, behold your son. Most agree that Mary would have been in her 40s and 50s 
Many believe that she was widowed at this point. And Jesus is doing more than just ensuring that she is properly cared for. What he is modeling here, what he is showing us is an application of one way that a child might honor his mother even in his final moments. But even more acutely, he is setting his mother up to be cared for within a community that he was establishing after his ascension. Is he not? The care of widows and orphans is to be a priority for the New Testament church. And this is one way that we can measure how well we're applying the law of love in the community of our local fellowships. How are we caring for our widows? How are we caring for our orphans? And for Mary, living in a predominantly Jewish community under the rule of the Roman Empire, she would have had little to no income as a widow. Her other sons, where are Jesus' brothers? Isn't it amazing? Jesus' brothers are missing. They're gone. Why wouldn't He ask one of them to care for her? Where are they at? In light of the cross, they're absent from her life. They are not present. And so if the care of the widows would be an important part of the New Testament church, then Jesus in no way was going to be in violation of neglecting His own mother who was widowed. Jesus' disciple John, the only remaining disciple in John's Gospel at the crucifixion of Jesus, he would now be charged with the care of Mary to care for her as one would care for his own mother. And look at the beautiful response recorded at the end of verse 27. Wonderful. And from that hour, from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And what's missing here, I think it's beautiful as John composes this Gospel as he's guided by the Holy Spirit, what's missing here is any indication of what this would have required of John. Of the sacrifice. Of the incredible inconvenience that this might have been for the Apostle. Was there space available in his home? What was the cost in that day for the adequate care of a widow? What does one make of the relationship or lack thereof that she had with her living sons? And how did that play in to the dynamic? And there is no further indication given in the rest of the Bible regarding how this might have played out. In fact, the next time that we actually see John together with Mary in a formal setting is in the book of Acts in the upper room. And there's some scholarly traditions that uphold John living in Jerusalem and Mary living together with him among the remaining apostles. And there's other scholarly traditions that have John in the city of Ephesus and Mary with him there. We're simply unsure how this transpired. But what we know is this. Jesus' death was gained for both Mary and for John. Mary gains a son one to care for her, protect her, to provide for her needs. And John gains a mother. One to help guide, direct, and inform the patterns of his life. And friends, this speaks deeper to our gain 
adoption. There's a broader portrait here that illustrates the family of God. We are brothers and sisters spiritually. Mothers and fathers one to another. The death of Jesus opens the door for sonship and daughtership into the family of God. And we cannot get so caught up in the grief of Calvary that we overlook our great gain. The hospitality of our God is unrivaled and unmatched. We could never imitate it here on earth, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. His home is our home. His family becomes our family. Jesus, the bridegroom. Jesus, the head of the church. Jesus, our brother. And then so as Jesus is on the cross and He's drawing His final breaths, we find the glory in the suffering and the victory in the pain. After securing the care of His mother in verse 28, look at verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. And that sentence drives us back to Psalm 69, verse 21, they gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Earlier in Mark's Gospel account, it's revealed that Jesus had actually turned down the offer of a drink. Earlier in this procession, He had refused. What Jesus had refused earlier was a natural sedative. He did not take it. But now this drink... It's a drink that's reserved for slaves in the lower class of the day. It's a drink that was despised by those who were in the upper ruling classes. It was a drink that was incredibly cheap and readily available from the guards who had Jesus at hand. And most likely, this is a beverage scholars have come to find was called Pashka. P-O-S-C-A. It was a drink that would have tasted much like vinegar. So I don't know how many of you like vinegar, but think about it in torture and in pain, hanging on the cross and asking for a drink, and somebody takes a branch with a sponge on the end and dips it in white vinegar, something like it, and puts it to your mouth. It would not have been too pleasant. The hyssop branch would have been readily available. They were used for both medicinal and sanitation purposes. And there was significance for this particular plant to be used at this particular point in Jesus' life. You see, it was the hyssop branch, it was the hyssop flower that at the end, when the branch dried, you could sharpen. But the flower, the flower was often used in the ancient Near East as a paintbrush. And what they would do at Passover is they would take the hyssop branch with the flowers at the end and they would dip the branch into the blood of the Passover lamb and they would walk out to the front of their doorpost and they would paint the blood of the lamb above the doorpost with the hyssop branch. I think it's interesting to note the posture of the Roman guards that are performing this service to Jesus in His final breath. Standing at the feet of Jesus, if you have to raise a sponge up to a person's mouth, your eyes must be lifted 
You must gaze upon that person. Could these men be the very same men who would later proclaim, surely this was the Son of God? We do not know. But this vinegar would have been given to Jesus and it would have given Him just enough moisture in the back of His throat to cry out His final proclamation. The end of verse 30. It is finished. And He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. Friends, those three words, those are the three words that are the hope of our future glory. The glory of God is magnified in the completed work of Jesus on the cross. Finished, complete, ended, closed, concluded, consummated, finalized, capped, crowned. It's done. There is no more work that needs to be done to atone for the sins of of humanity. Friends, I need, we need, it is finished. We need that. I told a friend the other day, I was talking to him uh, here at the church, he had come into my office and we were talking about the reality of this text and the power of these words and I said, listen, I know two absolutely true statements about my own self and my own life that prove to me why I need it is finished. And the first is this, I have a terrible problem with sin and soon I will be dead. And I've shared that with you up here before and it is absolutely true. It is true of all of us. We are sinners who are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And on this earth, soon we will face death. Because of Jesus's It is finished. We who are sons and daughters of God live in the reality of knowing that we can never out-sin the grace of God. Cannot happen. The second reality I know is this. I have a great need for Jesus every moment of my life. It doesn't end at my salvation. I can't live a life of any purpose apart from Jesus. It's impossible. Because of Jesus' it is finished, we can live in the truth that He has met our great need and He will continue to supply our every need for as long as we live on this earth. Because of it is finished, our life is full of purpose and meaning as He is at work in us and through us. Friends, church, I fear one of the lies that we believe is that we have to do the work of cleaning ourselves up either before or after salvation. Sometimes that's a lie we believe. Jesus does it all. He accomplishes it all in us and through us. And the greatest hope that I have, I believe the greatest hope that we have is that Jesus looks at the worst of us and He says, it is finished. I got this. Those sins are covered. I've cleansed you. I've declared you righteous before God. I'm fixing you. I'm making you whole and well. My Spirit is at work within you, providing you daily guidance, doing the work of sanctification. Jesus completed the work that He was given to do perfectly. God was glorified. The wrath of God was satisfied. And because of Jesus' great work on our behalf, we can be made right With God, amen. Amen. At the end of this final 
moment on the cross, it wasn't man who would take Jesus' spirit from Him. He, He chose to give up His spirit. No one took His life from Him. He chose to lay it down and pour it out. And He did it for me. And He did it for you. So how might our lives look in light of these realities? If we believe these truths today, if Jesus is our Lord and Savior, then we can grab hold of these realities and live in the light of our victory. The victory that Jesus has secured for us on the cross. And friends, I must remind us that we will face trouble, tribulation, persecution, and grief here on this earth. But the Gospel shows us how grief can be gained and assures us of the great hope of our future glory. Church, I would remind us that without suffering, there is no true contentment. Without adversity, there is no growth. Sharpening is hard, but it makes us more effective. Brokenness brings grief, but Jesus builds us back up even stronger. If we are never unsettled, we might not ever know comfort. If we are always secure, we may never know His protection. If we are never hungry, we may never experience God's provision. If we are always certain, we may never be open to growing in new ways. If we are always consumed with our rights, we might not ever understand sacrifice and the cost of discipleship. If we are never weak, then how can we know the brokenness of Christ and share in His sufferings? If we are not willing to acknowledge our sins, what can we know of forgiveness? And if we are never in need, might we miss our great need for Jesus? The glory of God and the glory of heaven are ever before us. And we live in this temporal place, but we hope and long for an eternal glory We are here now just for a short time, but desire far more to be with Jesus. I've heard many of you share that with me over the past number of months. And one day, we will close our eyes here and open them up in the presence of God. And oh, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And all of this because of those glorious three words. It is is finished.